Thanks for tuning in to the Future Farmers Network Mentor of the Month podcast, where we hear from industry experts about their career journeys, highs and lows, challenges, opportunities, and everything in between. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback and input on these conversations. So please send us your questions to admin at ffn.org.au. We'd also love your suggestions for future guests. Let us know who you'd like to hear from and we'll try and do our best to get them on here on our podcast. Without further ado, I'm pleased to introduce to you our mentor for this month, James Cleaver. James is a born and bred uh, Ningen boy, the gateway to the outback, a fifth generation of a proud farming family. James is passionate about building successful farm businesses, business practices, and creating a sustainable future for Australian agriculture. After briefly practicing law at a well-regarded Dobbo law firm, James now works as a rural support worker for the New South Wales DPI. James's most recent achievement is that he was the 2019 Royal Agricultural Society's Rural Achiever. So James, tell us a bit about yourself. Good evening, Tim. Thanks for, for having me along. And uh, yeah, thanks for acknowledging Ningen as the gateway to the outback too. I'm, um, I'm very happy with that just to, as a start. Um, so look, I, I'm a bit of a concrete cowboy these days, I'm a bit ashamed to say. Um, I live in Dubbo, as, as we say, but I, it all started out on a, a mixed farming uh, property, mixed enterprise out at, out at Ningen, uh, where my family still occupy a property out there, um, and my little brother uh, works alongside my father, uh, where they, they have uh, winter cereals and uh, livestock steer trading, uh, and they join the, the merino over the over the Bull Leicester to uh, get fat, fat lambs. So uh, there's plenty going on out there, out there at the moment, and it's uh, exciting times with a bit of rain about as well. Yeah, it's good to see a bit of rain about, um, certainly a stark contrast to the last few years. So, uh, mate, tell us uh, where it all started. How did you, how did you really make it to, um, to be here today? So, literally, I, I was sitting there in a solicitor's office, much like yourself, I think, and uh, we're doing conveyances, we're doing leases, and we're, I've got these wills all around me, and I found myself sort of staring down the beautiful Church Street of Dubbo, looking at the Rotunda, um, I was on graduate wages and um, eventually I wanted to move back to the family farm in, in Ningen. So, look, I, I love the firm I was working at, but at the same time I was dreaming about making it as a, as a leader in the agricultural industry and uh, it wasn't going to help me by doing older ladies' wills uh, sitting there in the legal firm. So if um, I'm the type of person that gets comfortable in positions and doesn't always change and, look, I really rate loyalty as a, as a, a characteristic – but I had this itch that I really needed scratching and I made a bit of a leap across to the Department of Primary Industries and looked that I haven't looked back since then, which is, uh, yeah, it's really paid off for me, which I'm very glad with. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, so obviously you work with the DPI now. You're a rural support worker um, with a rural resilience program. Bit of a mouthful there. Well, tell me, what what's that all mean? Well, we roll the R's a little bit in the, the Rural Resilience Program. So, look, the, we, we do a few basic things. We, we, we link people into services. Um, we work with other stakeholders to make sure that we're, we're not uh, duplicating that service. 
and we're reporting back to government on what we're seeing on the ground as well. So to make sure that that information, where we're, we're talking to, to landholders, um, that's getting passed back up the line. So it's a, it's a, a broad role and it means that we, we uh, change you know, our themes a lot of the time. We move from drought to flood to, to bushfire. Um, and at the moment, especially in 2019, it was a bit of a wild ride, but um, it does mean that we get to meet some fantastic people along the way. And it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a real eye-opener. We might have a bit of a pivot here and ask, um, what's your experiences with mentors? Do you, do you have a mentor? Um, have you ever had a mentor? Do you mentor anyone? What's, where are you at with that? Look, I'm a real fan of mentors. But I'm not really a fan of a formal or a routine or a routine arrangement. Um, I think personally uh, that the best that I, I work in the best situation where there's a mentor slash sort of pad one relationship when when both people show a bit of vulnerability, they're relatable and there's a bit of trust developed there. Um, it's not a one way relationship, and that's where I've seen it work best. I've been luckily lucky in my life to be surrounded by some terrific informal mentors, um, and I think I've learnt how to have these styles of relationships from, from my parents to start with. Um, this included us, look, in our farm business, everything happens around the kitchen table. That's where all our decisions are done. Um, and in our family, every view is valid. They, My parents didn't just ask for our feedback just to hear us talking and, and for us to make a point. They actually acted on it in some cases and they were big business decisions um, but these views, they took on it, even if, even though we were young people, and if even if these views had risks, they would they would often act on them, which is which is a pretty cool way to start. And I think that's really flowed on into the rest of my life. Um, I had another fantastic uh, informal mentor at the law firm I worked at, the the principal partner there, Andrew Butchery, and he was a he was a bushy at heart, even though he was a solicitor, and he, he loved it, loved discussion around the ag world and, and how we could overcome certain obstacles in farming families. And it, that's really helped me flow on to the, into this role now where you're problem solving and you're helping people um, get through adverse events. And it's put me in a fantastic stead for, for future obstacles and given me some crafty ideas to help people out. So um, I'm, I'm forever grateful for that. And, you know, from someone who just come up and have a cup of tea in the afternoon, I think he was trying to escape clients at times, but uh, it, was, it was really uh, a mate's relationship, uh, even though he was a lot older than me. And... Um, yeah, built on on a bit of relatability. Good to have had such um, strong mentors in your your parents and and a former employer there, and I suppose that's led into creating the person you are and you doing what you do. So why, if you were to sort of put it all together, why do you do what you do? So funny story, um, when we used to landmark landmark on our property back in the day, my father used to tell us and give us a bit of inspiration that uh, while we're lifting each lamb up into the cradles, he'd say, that's another $100 lamb there. And then we'd get the next one. He'd say, that's another $100 lamb, that one as well. And that association with money just got me a, a little interested by the, the whole industry. But uh, no, I'm I'm really, Tim, it's, I'm not that into, you know, breeding the, the perfect steer with the perfect rump. And I'm not that into um, burning diesel and, and tinkering with motors, to be honest. I don't know which way you'd screw in a bolt. But... For me, it's the social aspect of our rural communities that really, it makes me tick. Um, I'm, I'm the type of person that thrives on relationships. So to me, 
New South Wales, rural New South Wales, and actually rural Australia itself, there's no place better in the world to work socially. Um, we have these beautiful networks where it's still back in the age where you have these social interactions and it's not online, it's, it's person to person. Um, everybody knows everybody. People care about each other and they care about their neighbours and, and, and that's shown through everyday interaction. So it, it does, it may sound a little bit simplistic or narrow-minded, but if I'm down in Sydney for the weekend, I'm waving to everyone in the car and no one's waving back to me, or I'm walking down the street on the beach and, and I'm saying hi to people and I'm not getting that interaction back, it's a beautiful thing for me to be able to walk through rural communities and be able to know a few people, and if not, just to have that little bit of acknowledgement. Yeah, that's so true, isn't it? Um, you know, I, you know, recently out in Western New South Wales myself and every second car you pass has got the one finger wave or the full hand over the dashboard. Um, it's so great and important too that young people don't lose that, um, you know, with a, more people communicating online and, you know, perhaps losing those social nuances that make up rural Australia is so important, aren't they? Absolutely. I think it's a selling point for us as a, as a rural community um, that we have this brilliant social fabric and there's something that we should foster for the future. So I couldn't agree more. Um, now, James, I know you um, I know you pretty well. Um, we've had the pleasure of studying together back uh, a while ago and uh, also working in a similar profession. Uh, so I feel a bit uh, jaded when I ask this question, but what are, what are some time management tricks uh, you've got? Well, I think it's worth putting out there at the very beginning that I'm not the greatest time manager. And it's, uh, it's something that I've had to work on a fair bit, especially in my professional life, as, as time goes on. Um, there has been a bit of procrastination in the past, and I'm one of those people that likes those shiny objects, so I'm always moving on to the, the newest and best thing. But uh, along with that awareness that that's the case, I've had to, I've had to improve. And so to me, look, time management, I've, I've had to work on my list making, um, getting back to basic basics really using those calendars and if, you, if you're saying something to someone or you're making a time for someone then you're locking it straight into that calendar um, when you when you're doing those lists for me it's prioritizing what is highest priority what is lowest priority and making sure that you're getting things done I also think it works two ways though we work in a society where where people are always expecting something of you and they there's we're always moving on to the next step it's really important to manage their expectations when you say that you're going to do something um, you are a, if you can if you're able to say to someone that look I'm busy at the moment I'm doing these certain things um, but and give them a, a real time limit then you can um, create a, a level of trust there that doesn't always uh, happen if you if you miss it and you turn up late a few weeks later um, the other thing for me is learning to say no and I've just recently started making a work plan which outlines sort of what I'm doing for my month so that uh, whilst our role is quite broad with what we do as the Department of Primary Industries, I can, I can say, no, look, this is what I'm doing this month. Um, I can fit you in here or here. It's not just saying yes to everyone and being that, that yes man that I can sometimes be. Yeah, it's a big, uh, especially in rural Australia, I think uh, people's word is so important. And if you let a man's word down, um, you can lose trust Absolutely. with your community. And I suppose in a role like yours, trust is absolutely paramount to to what you do. So James, is this, is this where you thought you'd end up when you're the kid throwing those $100 lambs up into the cradle? Is this where you thought it would be? 
Well, I've got to probably start with my poor old nana here. My nana thought that I was going to be a solicitor and that I might have been a barrister or something like that, representing someone in the high court and, you know, getting the high-profile cases. I think when I told her that I was leaving the, the law to head across to a, um, a government uh, organisation, I think her heart sank a little bit, to be honest. And uh, so it, it certainly wasn't where other people saw me go. Um, look... I don't have a plan as such for, for my life. I think some people really know where they want to go. Um, I find plans sometimes a little bit limiting, especially especially in the agricultural industry. I have a confidence that I can sort of mix it with anyone, and that may be very naive, but uh, from CEOs to politicians, I think that I can talk to them, I can communicate with them, and I'm aware of where I sit in the whole in the whole scheme of things. Um, that I wouldn't be overstepping the mark or I wouldn't be talking out of turn. So that allows me that, that bit of confidence to go as far as um, the, the challenges that come before me let me go. Um, I need to keep challenging myself. I think that's important. Uh, but, look, it's it's wherever it takes me at the moment and I, I have no real plan. But at the same time, our agricultural industry is absolutely flourishing and it's, you know, we, we often get told that it's just jobs on farm, but when you start working for government organisations like the DPI, you realise that there's so much more to it than than just that. Uh, especially out in rural New South Wales, uh, our whole towns are built on the agricultural industry. So every single role that's there for employment in, in those towns is somehow related to ag, and that means that the opportunities are endless. Why don't you tell us a bit about a lesson that you've learned the hard way. Yeah, so lesson I've learned the hard way, I, th- I found this a little bit hard. Um, so I've, I've, I've joined this support role, okay, and I, I'm with the DPI, and um, we're, seeing, we're seeing droughts, we're seeing bushfires, and we're seeing all these things that are affecting rural people. And these rural people are people that I relate to. They're people that I'm feeling like I'm representing to the rest of government, and I'm, I'm talking to them in public, I'm getting up in front of crowds and I've, I've got to talk to them, I've got to tell them what's out there and what's available in the way of support packages and get and linking them into services. And these people are angry because you know there is adverse events can often bring out the worst and people that can bring out the best as well. So look, I'm not saying that I have had vicarious trauma, I think it's a, it's a, a very serious um, matter, vicarious trauma, but I was starting to see touches and signs of that towards the end of last year when, you know, we're, we're looking at droughts and bushfires and I'm starting to get that real burnout. I'm, I'm feeling um, like my compassion wasn't what it used to be. People are calling you up and at the start you're sort of thinking to yourself, okay, I'm going to – I'll do everything within my power um, to, to help this person. And after, you know, the thousandth call you're starting to think, wow, I, you know – there's not much I can do to help this person or it's the same old story that I've heard all along um, and I could see myself I was very aware that this was happening um, but at the same time it was very hard to stop um, I was also I've had a bit of trouble with my short-term memory and I was having regular dreams it was really weird about you know dealing with difficult people dealing with difficult crowds and I was talking in my sleep and I was you know making these having these arguments with these people and I was just to me something was up I had to sort of take a moment and, and, and get back from it so what I've learned from that, and it, it's something that I have learned the hard way, is that you've got to distance yourself from the situation a little bit. You've got to not take that stuff as personally. Even though these people are extremely relatable, I can see often my parents or or my um, my family in the same situation, 
you, you need to withdraw yourself a little bit and, and not take it as personally. And that's quite hard to do. Um, but, you know, by acknowledging that some of these things were out of my control um, and that people are on, you can, you, can, you can help people a little bit and you can nudge them in a direction, but you don't have full control of where they're heading. That has helped me somewhat. And, um, yeah, distancing myself from the relationship. At the same time, I'm, yeah, it's not going to stop me doing the work that I do. And, uh, yeah, fingers crossed. We've had a little bit of a break now and uh, we, can, we can continue on with what we're going, what we're going through. Yeah, I think that's, um, that's great advice for a lot of people and anyone that's trying to persuade people to do anything. And the age-old saying, you can, you can lead the horse to water, um, but you can't make them drink. And uh, I think that's a really good insight. So thank you for being so honest with us there. Uh, might change the tone a bit and tell us um, what are you most proud of in your career to date? Obviously still ways to go for you yet, we hope, but um, what so far uh, are you most proud of? Well, look, there's, there's two things. Uh, firstly, uh, Rob College is a, a college up in Armidale. I don't know if your listeners have all heard of it, but 2015 I've left there and it's a it's an institution that I'm quite proud of. I've had a lot of family um, go through there as well, and it's been around for, for 60-odd years, and I was named a life member down there. So that, for me, first thing, that, that gets my, my heart pumping a little bit, um, a bit of pride really flowing through the veins there. But the big fish that sort of happened middle of last year for me, and it's um, it's been a fantastic opportunity and a real eye-opener, is the New South Wales Rural Achiever. Uh, the opportunities and the exposure that I gained out of being named the Rural Achiever for New South Wales have been amazing. I, I really have to pinch myself sometimes. Um, Royal and country shows have demonstrated their excellence in in, uh, in showing for over 100 years. Some shows are older than the towns they actually take place in. For example, Ningen. The, the show actually occurred out at Cannon Bar, um, which is a town on the, creek, on the banks of the Duck Creek before the town of Ningen was even built. So... Uh, to represent this network and our rural industries is purely awesome, really, and it's, it's something I'm, I'm very grateful for. It really has been a bit of rocket fuel for my, my career, and it's, um, it's given me exposure to, to what else is out there. My, my bit of advice to anyone that's, that's listening to this is go out there, and even if it's not the Rural Achiever role, which but I'm, I'm, I couldn't, couldn't recommend it higher, but some of these things... Push yourself and, and, and put yourself out there a little bit and sometimes you, you never know what the reward will be and certainly I'm not one for making applications but uh, I'm, I'm very, very grateful that I, I made the application to uh, become a New South Wales Rural Achiever. Also, I think, you know, obviously it's been, as you say, rocket fuel uh, for your career. I think every every second edition of The Land I read, there's a, a James Cleaver image or something but I think I read in one of those articles, is it... Is it true that you'd never been to a show before or was it the Royal Easter show before? I'd, I'd, well, first things first, um, my dad used to say, if you appear more than three times in the land newspaper, you're sure to go broke. So dad's talking to his bank manager and his accountant in overtime at the moment. But look, yeah, I hadn't been to a Sydney show. So it's uh, it was a, a real eye-opener, um, something I hadn't seen before. But it was a beautiful thing to be able to see, you know, us as a rural industry taking – our, our showcase of everything we have, our best competitors down to Sydney and Sydney people turning out in droves to, to see what we've produced. It, you know, that's, that's what we all want to see and we want to see more of. So 
Uh, long may it continue, especially after coronavirus this year, There's the show being called off. Uh, may it come back bigger and better than ever next year. Uh, yeah, he's hoping, hey. Um, just on that tangent still, you're a pretty modest person uh, in day-to-day life. Um, how is, I suppose, winning such a, a coveted prize um, affected you and how have you handled all of the press coverage essentially you're you're like a mini celebrity um in some circles at the moment well i am on nana's fridge but that's about it no look it's i've been incredibly lucky um the the people that i i did the 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 rural achievement process there we had we had an instagram um influencer who had ninety thousand followers there in, in thank a farmer for your first meal we had um a political advisor who who worked for gladys berejiklian in in advising for water uh, for urban and rural water and he's doing this and he's 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 age 26 two years younger than me so there was some there was some fantastic people there um and it was great to mix it with them i don't know tim i i have a big head physically as is so um we can't let it get any bigger (laughs) yeah that's a i didn't know they made cobras that big (laughs) but uh anyway uh how James, how would you describe your leadership, your personal leadership style? Yeah, so like like uh, a lot of people, I've done the Herman brain scan and the disc analysis, and I'm look from from what I can take from that, and I think it rings true. I'm I'm the motivating type. I'm the motivating type of leader. If I want to try and take a, a group a certain way, then I'm going to try and give them some inspiration to get there. But taking a step back from that, I, I think the most important part of leadership for me is the people that you're actually leading. You've got to be listening to them and you've got to be giving information to them which is relatable and it's got to be clear. Um, my challenge for myself as a, as a leader is, and I, I think it's a trap that we can sometimes fall into, is to not always make those popular decisions, um, but to make decisions for the group into the future and, and you know in their best interests down the track. Now this, I reckon it can be pretty difficult, um, but it's integral to really explain these decisions and why they're why they're made so you can take that group along with you on, on the journey. And that might be where that little bit of that motivator can can help out um, getting them to start that journey. Yeah, it's a bit tricky uh, with those and, and making the decision that you know is right because sometimes it's the decision that people don't want to hear. And in a lot of, I suppose, organisations and groups, it's often the people that um, say the things that people want to hear that gets them uh, votes uh, Absolutely. to be in those leadership positions. So I think that's really insightful. And, um, yeah, thanks for that. Uh, thanks for that, James. Um, in hindsight, um, you've had the ability to write a letter to yourself um, at 20 years old. What, um, what would be in that letter that you've written yourself? Look, the, it's short and simple for me, this letter. It's be confident and take measured leaps of faith. I think confidence can get you so far. There is really nothing can stop you. you know, sometimes you can pump yourself up that much that you could run through a brick wall. Um, but if you're confident and you, and you take something on confidently, then in a lot of cases, people might not know where, where how much detail you actually know in the first place. That confidence 
comes across as an air and, and, and people breathe that in and um, they'll follow you anywhere in, in some cases. Now, I'm not saying that you, you need to fake it as such, um, but I am saying if, if you're going to do something, believe in it and get, hit it with a bit of gusto. Um, and if you're going to take that leap of faith, do a bit of research beforehand, but don't hold yourself back and ha- have, a, have a crack. I think, you know, um, there's been some times I, I started this job at the, at the start of the the drought in 2018 and there's been some audiences that haven't been the, the nicest audiences to get up and speak in front of um, farmers with pitchforks and burning torches sort of thing and you know if you get up there and you, you show your best and you're confident and and you, you give them the best show in a lot of cases they'll um, they'll understand where you're coming from and they may even relate to you a little bit as well and that and I think that can only help if you get up there and you're a blubbering mess uh, and you you show some weakness, often people can jump on that. So uh, I think confidence, 20-year-old me, go for it, son. <laughs> great advice, James, great advice. I think uh, one of the great things about um, young people in agriculture in Australia is there's a underlying sense of optimism throughout whatever challenge is being thrown at them, you know, fire, flood, drought, um, COVID-19, there's always this sense of optimism and it's great to see, but we can't kid ourselves when we say that it's all blue skies and rainbows. There's obviously some challenges out there for young people in the agricultural industry. What do you think is the biggest challenge that they're facing at the moment? Yeah, good question, Tim. And I think it's really important that there there is some real positives out there, and that, that we don't dwell on on the negatives all the time. But there there is a there is for me a big challenge, and that's our image as an agricultural industry. Um, I'm not saying that we've we've got it wrong at the moment, but there is things that we can work on there. So, to me, our image. I don't think as an agricultural industry we can we can be self entitled, and that we can say to city people that they have to thank a farmer for everything that we do and what we produce. I think, you know, that would be a, an easy trap for us to fall in because the truth is in a global market economy that we, that we position ourselves in, the consumer can always go elsewhere and they will. They'll vote with their feet if something's cheaper or if there's a better quality product somewhere else. So instead, to me, I think we need to, to form a narrative about the quality of our product. And Australia has some fantastic products out there. We all know this because we're, we're a part of the agricultural industry, but we need to be sharing that story transparently with, with our, our city and urban audiences. So um, we need to share that story behind the product, the journey these, these, pro, these fantastic products have taken from getting out in Western New South Wales at Ningen uh, on, on the property there to, to down in Sydney and onto your plate. Um, we need people to know about the care and the science that we put behind our industry and the efficiencies that we're creating to make sure that we have a viable future. I think in the age of, of veganism um, and animal rights, that transparency and that image and, and bringing people along for the ride is so, so important. And, and that's the challenge that's going to face us in the future as we become that more, we become far more visible through social media um, and the World Wide Web. Yeah, I think that's so true. That uh, provenance is something we're starting to see a little bit of, um, you know, developing further from what once was, you know, the paddock to plate scenario, you know, is a bit of a shift at the moment. 
to potentially be something that's more mainstream and having that provenance and knowing you know where your food and fiber is coming from is more and more important to the end consumer um what do you think is the most underrated value so again a short one for me um, with the underrated value and I, I think that it's courage um i sit around a lot of tables where there's there's meetings with with various stakeholders from different groups and people all have their, their viewpoints and that, you know, sometimes we're sitting in meetings for meetings sake to me being able to say, having the courage to go, we need to be talking about the people who, who don't have the opportunity to sit at this table to, to bring their views to the table, have, have courage to look after um, the people that we're representing. To me, that's the most important part. If, if we're not bringing that forward and we're just having those meetings for meetings sake, that's we're not getting stuff done and we're, we're not doing things in the best interests of, of the people we're representing. James, obviously the Future Farmers Network Mentor of the Month podcast is one of the best out there at the minute, but do you have any other podcasts or reading or resources that you can recommend to other young farmers and young people in agriculture? Well, first things first, I heard that... Uh, Liv Faulkner do a, an interview with Will Gilbert for the Future Farmers Network the other day, and it was just fantastic. So all credit to the Future Farmers Network for what they're putting together here. Um, it's great to showcase what, what's going on in our, our brilliant industry. But for me, look, I'm, I'm a bit of a hands-on character. I, I love a podcast, but it, often it's entertainment or it's, it's Richard Feidler with the conversations here. So if I'm, if I'm trying to learn something, I like doing it in person, then you, these there's a there's a number of reoccurring courses that keep coming up for me that you keep hearing about that to be honest I haven't completed them but they're on the wish list and I really really want to do them so grazing for profit for me um, KLR marketing they're the two that I'd love to be able to be better with my grass budgeting and also know what we have on the ground so we're managing what our inputs are so we know at the other end how much how much product we have and what we what we can sell I think. As an industry in livestock, we've got to be so much better at that. Um, we are improving, don't get me wrong, but you, you see a year, especially with the fantastic start we've had in 2020, where there's there in a lot of places, in some, and you know, it's not all, but in a lot of places, there's some great feed about how can we make the best opportunity of, of that feed that's on the ground. So those two, grazing for profit and KLR, they're, they're definitely on the wish list. The other one that I hear a lot about is Robinson and Sewell, Brad Sewell. Um, any webinar or course that I hear involving them sounds like quality and I, over and over I hear um, great feedback from, from farmers who have actually taken on um, Robinson and Sewell to, to look at their mortgage and, and refinancing. So, look, I... That's not a plug for them. I don't. I don't know these people at all. But I've heard farmers that are, that have spent a few thousand dollars to save tens of thousands of dollars through their through refinancing and negotiating with banks. And the better that we become negotiating with those banks, the more power we have as producers, and that lowers our costs, and that can only help us into the future. So those three for me, they're brilliant. Yeah, that's um, that's great. Um, and I suppose they're all very technical-based farming things. What about uh, more broadly, like uh, anything else you've got on your on your wish list or your reading list at the minute? Yeah, so I've, I've there's there's a few books I've I've done. Doug Avery's The Resilient Farmer, and that's 
you know, it's, it's a brilliant way of looking at the tra- transition through farming from, from a young um, farmer through to being older and, and having that sort of uh, helicopter view on farming itself. So it's a, it's a definite must read. Uh, another book which isn't uh, related to farming, but I think you can make relations back to it, is The Barefoot Investor. To me, that, that's a great way to get started on an easy read about finance and, and getting yourself in there. The final one, and it's a shameless plug here, is our Rural Resilience Team have our TUF workshops, which are TUF stands for Tune Up for Farmers. And look, they're, they're small groups where uh, men of all ages get together and we, we sit down for two days. Uh, there's plenty of beers drunken, but there's also uh, a wellbeing element in it. Um, we will look at the, the impacts of, of socialising and how we're relating to one another. Um, and I, I couldn't, after seeing the benefits of what a tough workshop has on, on rural men, I couldn't push it further for our, for our audience. So if you if you're a man of any age, give it a give it a go. Yeah, right. And that was a tough workshop. T U F F, which stands for. Tune up for farmers. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, we might need to work on the acronyms a little bit, but what goes on behind the scenes is it's fantastic. Yeah, it sounds great. Sounds great. Now, James, you've talked um, a bit about resilience and I suppose you you're, a lot of work you do now is around resilience. What does resilience mean to you? Yeah, resilience gets bandied around. And I'll tell you what, sometimes when I stand up in front of an audience and you say you're from the Rural Resilience Program, people just instantly switch off. So I apologise in advance if, if that's the case, but I think resilience has been thrown around a little too much. It, it's a it's a great word, um, but it, it's been overused. So to me, the definition for resilience is the ability to bounce forward after an adverse event. Uh, so... There's, we're obviously in the agricultural industry, we, we get hit with fire, flood um, and drought and these things keep coming. I, I wrote a timeline for the Ningen area recently and if you included uh, biosecurity risks, you included those adverse events like um, environmental effects and then you went and uh, put in economic uh, effects like interest rates or downturns in the economy, um, you soon realise that we are living constantly with adverse events um, and that sometimes we don't have the ability to recover from those events before we get hit with the next one. So I think it's really important that we that we build this resilience. Resilience just doesn't, you don't just do one course and you become resilient and it's not that res- farmers aren't already resilient, they are, but we need to continue to work on it to allow, um, to, to build ourselves and keep building those walls up so when, you know, the outside world keeps trying to knock it down, we've got another block to put on top to, to keep those adverse events at bay and we can continue on with our, our, fantastic, our fantastic agricultural businesses that we have. Yeah, thanks so much, James. Um, well, we might wrap it up there, James. Thank you so much for your time. Um, everyone, that was James Cleaver from the Rural Resilience Program and the 2019 Rural Achiever for New South Wales. That's it for this month. We'd love to hear your thoughts via our Facebook page and on Twitter. And we look forward to bringing you another enlightening and motivating podcast next month. Until next time, cheers. 